Good evening. Uh, I, I'm Tim O'Shea, the Principal and Vice-Chancellor of the University. Uh, tremendous pleasure to welcome you to this Enlightenment lecture in the series Our Changing World. Um, the University is very proud of the Changing World uh, course. It's designed for first-year students. It uh, addresses global challenges. Uh, it also highlights the role of interdisciplinary research um, and addresses topics such as climate change, international development, uh, religion and society, infectious diseases, global health, and the aging population. Um, this is the, the third year we have run this course, um, and I think one of the things that's very attractive about it is it's addressed at different levels. There are first-year students who are in the audience who are taking the course for credit, and they've had the uh, privilege of a uh, master class with our, our lecturer earlier today. As there's members of the public, and you're warmly welcome, um, and there are um, my, my academic colleagues. Um, it's uh, been a, a wildly successful endeavor. Um, you, these courses are all available uh, from iTunes U. They're all recorded. There have been more than half a million downloads and um, uh, 45,000 people have watched all of the currently 23 online video lectures. So in addition to stu students, uh, members of the public and staff here, and we've got a, an audience in excess of 1,000 uh, tonight, uh, there is also the slightly bigger audience of half a million out, out there. Um, this course wouldn't have happened without um, the inspirational guidance of uh, two professors in the School of Biomedical Sciences, uh, Professor Gareth Leng and Professor Mayank Ducha. Uh, and it is wonderful to see colleagues in a particular specialized area of the university reach out and do something that addresses uh, students in all our 22 schools and addresses a wider public. Uh, we've been very privileged. We've had very distinguished uh, lecturers, internal and external, in the three years of this course. Uh, at this slot last year, we had John Snow, uh, who was superb, and we're expecting an equally superb lecture this evening from Mary Robinson. As you will know, uh, she served as the seventh and first female of President of Ireland from 1990 to 1997 and then subsequently United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights uh, from 1997 to 2002. Uh, she first rose to prominence as an academic barrister, campaigner, and member of the Irish Senate. And she's a transformative figure in the history of the presidency of Ireland who revitalized and liberalized a previously conservative and low-profile office. Uh, she has been Honorary President of Oxfam International since 2002 and of the European Inter-University Centre for Human Rights and Democratisation since 2005. And she is Chair of the International Institute for Environment and Development and a founding member and Chair of the Council of Women World Leaders. So, so massive uh, contributions. Um, she returned to live in Ireland at the end of 2010 and has set up the Mary Robinson Foundation uh, Climate Justice, uh, which has as the objective to be a centre for thought leadership, education and advocacy on the struggle to secure global justice for those many victims of climate change who are usually forgotten, the poor, the disempowered and the marginalised. Uh, she's also Chair of the Institute of Human Rights and Business and Chancellor of the University of Dublin. 
In 2004, she received Amnesty International's Ambassador of Conscience Award for her work in promoting rights. Uh, we're very proud of the fact uh, that she's an honorary graduate of this university and got an honorary degree 10 years ago. And she's very proud of the fact that her father is a medical graduate of this university and graduated uh, in this very hall. Uh, so it is a great pleasure to invite her uh, to address you on the subject, human rights in the modern world. Yeah. Thank you very much, Principal and Vice-Chancellor, for those very warm words of welcome back to Edinburgh. And thank you for mentioning the fact that my father graduated in medicine from here because I was the only daughter wedged between four brothers, hence my early interest in human rights. But <laughs> I really uh, adored my father, and uh, he was very proud of the fact that he had studied in the University of Edinburgh. So from a very early stage, I thought this must be a great university. And I was very pleased to be honored myself um, a few years ago and have that link uh, with the university. And I'm very happy now to take part in the Enlightenment Lecture Series. Indeed, it's just five months since I was invited here to the Playfair Library Hall uh, to speak at the launch of the Scotland Climate Justice Fund alongside the First Minister, Alex Salmond, and the then Minister for Environment and Climate Change, Stuart Stevenson, and the Chair of the Scottish Human Rights Commission, Alan Miller. Since then, as many of you will know, Alan Miller delivered his lecture in the Enlightenment Lecture Series, From Climate Change to Climate Justice. I'm not quite sure why he was allowed to take my main plank, and you know, who decided that he could talk about climate justice when I was coming? But however, I'm also going to talk about it later. Um, and I hope, indeed, that some of my remarks will build on what he was saying. I've been following closely the progress of the Scottish Human Rights Commission. I was here in 2008 when it was launched, and I was back again in October 2010 for an impressive gathering of representatives of human rights institutions from around the world on the subject of business and human rights, um, a very impressive uh, meeting in the uh, Scottish Parliament. And I'm also pleased to see that Alan himself, on behalf of the Scottish Human Rights Commission, is playing a leading role in uh, both the European group and the Commonwealth network of national human rights institutions. You're justifiably proud here in Scotland that the Scottish Enlightenment of the 18th century was characterized by an outpouring of intellectual and scientific accomplishments. The thinkers of the Scottish Enlightenment asserted the fundamental importance of human reason, combined with a rejection of any authority which could not be justified by reason. They held to an optimistic belief in the ability of humanity to effect changes for the better in society and nature, guided only by reason. I think we must learn from this important period of history and believe once again that we hold the power to tackle the problems of our modern world, such as poverty and climate change, and create a more equitable and sustainable planet for all. I'd like to begin my own 
topic this evening, which is human rights in the modern world, by taking a look back to the beginning of this short century. At the historic Millennium Summit in September 2000, the largest gathering ever up to that point of world leaders and UN member states reaffirmed their commitment to ensure the full realization of human rights in the Millennium Declaration, and they recognized the link between human rights, development, and good governance. From that Millennium Declaration, there was extrapolated eight Millennium Development Goals, which many of you will be familiar with, to tackle poverty, to improve health, to have gender equality, etc. And these were goals that the world could focus on, and they were measurable. They had indicators to measure them, and we're still working on them up to 2015. That all seemed very positive from the point of view of human rights and development. Just one year later, though, the terrorist attacks on the United States of America on September the 11th, 2001, shook the world. I was still serving as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights at that time. When the dust cleared from 9-11, literally and figuratively, I recall thinking to myself in considerable alarm, not just has this been devastating for those who were killed and for their families and for the, uh, those who were affected um, by having to deal with the whole issue, but what does it mean for the future of human rights standards? The war on terror resulted in a devastating undermining of human rights standards in the United States itself and in much of the rest of the world. Counterterrorism measures often violated human rights, such as extraordinary rendition, meaning sending somebody to another country to be tortured, knowing that they would be tortured in that other country. Ambivalence or worse on use of torture in countries that had uh, ratified the Convention Against Torture. Opening Guantanamo Bay without regard for the Geneva Conventions. Um, a very pervasive and sometimes unlawful surveillance and many other steps. What the war on terror has taught us over a period of time is that in fact we must hold to our human rights values and um, keep them at our core in order to win the minds and hearts of people everywhere and thereby effectively counteract the threat of terrorism. But human rights are about more than just what we call civil and political rights. There are also economic, social and cultural rights, the fundamentals of human dignity. It's shocking to me that in the 21st century, about one billion people go to bed hungry every night. And many children die of hunger in our world today. There are clearly issues of inequality, both within countries and between countries, that need to be addressed in order to tackle this issue. At the Rio Plus 20 conference in June of this year, the conference that built on the first Rio conference 20 years ago, world leaders, along with thousands of participants from governments, the private sector, NGOs, and other groups, came together with the goal of shaping a new development paradigm. 
one that could reduce poverty, advance social equity, and ensure environmental protection on an ever more crowded planet to get to the future we want, as the title said. The outcome fell short of this vision, with some agreements made, but no real paradigm shift towards true sustainable development. Overall, I was disappointed with the outcome from Rio Plus 20 and feel the negotiated text failed to place human rights at the center of sustainable development. The failure, for example, to include the term reproductive rights in the text was a step backwards from the Cairo consensus in 1994 and the Beijing conference in 1995, showing that we must continue the fight for the full realization of human rights. And I was meeting with students at lunchtime. Um, we were discussing human rights issues, and I was making it clear it's not always a straightforward progress. Sometimes there are setbacks, and we have to try to move forward again. People will need to mobilize themselves, and there was a lot of talk about mobilizing coming away from the Rio conference. Mobilize themselves to make sure that the world we pass on to our children and grandchildren is safe, equitable, prosperous, and sustainable. The legacy of Rio Plus 20 will not be the negotiated text, which is quite weak, but the extent of the mobilization of people to build the future they desire. The challenge now is to ensure that human rights are a central part of the post-2015 development agenda. The Millennium Development Goals played a significant role in providing the world with a focus on global goals which could be measured, but they were limited limited by the failure to integrate human rights and issues of good governance. It would be necessary to emphasize this in the review of the MDGs in September 2013 and to insist on a rights-based approach to sustainable development goals post-2015. Another important breakthrough for human rights this century was the clarification of the role of business and the private sector in respecting human rights. In the 20th century, we've had more active players become involved in human rights, and I really encourage this. I hope a number in this audience will become more interested, uh, whether they're studying law or studying politics, or, but uh, both within the university and wider. And this is an issue for everybody. Human rights are not a specialist concern. They are a matter for everybody. And in the 20th century, we've had more active players become involved in human rights, um, in civil society, what we call non-governmental organizations, uh, philanthropic uh, foundations, and indeed business. Work on drawing up guiding principles for governments and business was led by Professor John Ruggie, who was the UN Special Representative on Business and Human Rights. He worked for six years um, and developed, first of all, a framework and then guiding principles. And in June 2011, the United Nations Human Rights Council unanimously endorsed the new guiding principles on business and human rights, designed to provide for the first time a global standard for preventing and addressing the risk of adverse impacts on human rights linked to business activity, demonstrating that in the 21st century, everyone must take responsibility for human rights. Just a week ago, I attended the World Economic Forum in Dubai, 
I was chairing the Global Agenda Council on Human Rights. There was much energy and excitement at the session as we discussed the importance to governments in the region of fulfilling the duty that they have to protect their populations from human rights violations by corporations. And we also discussed the fact that corporations themselves have a responsibility to respect all human rights. And how is this to be implemented in practice in different parts of the world? In all our thinking about human rights in the world, I believe that we can be guided by the visionary approach to our common future, which was contained in the report of a high-level panel set up by UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, um, which reported in January. It was the high-level panel on global sustainability, and its report is called Resilient People, Resilient Planet, a Future Worth Choosing. It sets out a people-centered and rights-based approach to safeguarding the planet and ensuring prosperity. And I want to quote from one paragraph, which I think sums up quite well the thinking um, of the panel. The truth is that sustainable development is fundamentally a question of people's opportunities to influence their future, claim their rights, and voice their concerns. Democratic governance and full respect for human rights are key prerequisites for empowering people to make sustainable choices. The peoples of the world will simply not tolerate continued environmental devastation or the persistent inequality which offends deeply held universal principles of social justice. Citizens will no longer accept governments and corporations breaching their compact with them as custodians of a sustainable future for all. More generally, international, national and local governance across the world must fully embrace the requirements of a sustainable development future, as must civil society and the private sector. At the same time, local communities must be encouraged to participate actively and consistently in conceptualizing, planning, and executing sustainability policies. Central to this is including young people in society, in politics, and in the economy. That's the end of a quote which is from a particular section about the vision, but I think it captures the kind of values that we need, and I loved that reference to including young people, because that doesn't happen enough. Um, it may seem in a university context that young people are included, but in wider society, this is not the case. And we have to um, address that issue and address it with some urgency. The values that I've just been referring to get to the heart of what my foundation, the Mayor Robinson Foundation Climate Justice, is working to achieve, a human rights-based approach to climate change, which places people at its center and works towards an equitable solution to the climate crisis. The work of our foundation is informed by and committed to a number of principles, the principles of climate justice, which you can find on our website, which is www.mrfcj, for the initials of the foundation, Mary Robinson Foundation, Climate Justice. I emphasize the principles of climate justice because we live by them. We didn't just draw them up with a number of other organizations and agree them and uh, draw on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the Climate Convention, etc. We actually want to have a values-led approach to what we do. And one of those is the right to development. 
It was recognized as a human right since 1986. The right to development acknowledges the right of every human person and all peoples to participate in, contribute to, and enjoy economic, social, cultural, and political development in which all human rights and fundamental freedoms can be fully realized. That's Declaration 41-128. stroke It's our moral obligation to ensure people everywhere in the world realize their right to development by supporting them in embracing a low-carbon, climate-resilient way of life. My colleagues and I in the Foundation also believe that the benefits and burdens associated with climate change and its resolution must be fairly allocated. This involves acceptance of a phrase which is in the Climate Convention, but which has never been properly opened up and given space and place for genuine discussion. The phrase is the acceptance of common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities in relation to reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. This is a pretty common sense idea that those who have most responsibility for greenhouse gas emissions, those countries that have based their economic development on fossil fuel-based economic growth, must bear most responsibility. And have the most capacity to act, and they must cut emissions first. In addition, those who have benefited and still benefit from emissions in the form of ongoing economic development and increased wealth, mainly in industrialized countries, and including now in emerging economies, the big economies like China, India, Brazil, etc., have an ethical obligation to share benefits with those who are today suffering from the effects of these emissions mainly vulnerable people in developing countries. People in low-income countries must have access to opportunities to adapt to the impacts of climate change and be enabled to embrace low-carbon development through access to sustainable energy, innovation, and knowledge. Climate change will be one of the defining attributes of this century. And our ability to deal with this challenge while shaping a world of opportunity for all of humankind is a daunting task. We are not on top of it. We are not on course for a safe world that will be below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial standards. We're heading towards a world of four degrees or higher. For these reasons, I approach climate change as an issue of justice and human rights. And I'd like to use this lecture to further explore climate change as an issue of justice. I say that because thinking of enlightenment, to me, it's very clear. Enlightenment in the 21st century means we have to think and act intergenerationally. Climate justice links development, human rights, and climate change. It's a human rights-based approach to combating climate change, which seeks equitable outcomes to both protect the vulnerable and provide access to benefits arising from our necessary transition to low-carbon development. Climate justice has a focus on people. It looks at the causes, the impacts, and the solutions to the problem from a human perspective. Climate change is fully informed by science, but it communicates and identifies solutions from the perspective of human needs and rights. 
As such, it seeks equity in the way in which we deal with the negative impacts of climate change. For example, which countries take the lead on cutting greenhouse gas emissions. And equity in assessing benefits. For example, access to off-grid renewable energy for communities living without access to electricity. The 1.3 billion people in the world today who don't have access to electricity. 1.3 billion people out of a total population of 7 billion. There's an increasing trend towards linking the international human rights framework with the climate change process. Just over a year ago, the UN Human Rights Council adopted its third resolution on human rights and climate change, resolution 18-22. This time the resolution, which was tabled by the Philippines and Bangladesh, affirmed that human rights obligations, standards, and principles have the potential to inform and strengthen international and national policy, international and national policy making in the area of climate change, promoting policy coherence, legitimacy, and sustainable outcomes. This linking of the international human rights framework and the climate change process is now starting to be reflected in the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. For example, the Cancun agreements in Mexico from COP16 note resolution 10.4 of the United Nations Human Rights Council on Human Rights and Climate Change, an earlier version of the resolution I just mentioned. These agreements also referenced existing human rights obligations in the overarching section of the Cancun outcome, the shared vision for long-term cooperative action, and I quote, emphasizes that parties should, in all climate-related actions, fully respect human rights. So without getting too technical about it, what is happening is governments get together in the Human Rights Council. Indeed, Ireland has just been elected to the Human Rights Council, so we have even more responsibility to deal with our own problems. And um, uh, that's a body that deals, from a human rights perspective, increasingly with climate. And then you have the larger Human Rights Convention with 190 countries involved, which increasingly is evoking the human rights resolutions and the language of human rights into the climate arena. It's also worth noting that the Human Rights Council has created a new mandate, as we would say, and appointed Mr. John Knox as the UN's first independent expert on human rights and the environment. He began working on this mandate on the 1st of August of this year. Climate change will feature in this work, allowing further evidence of the links between rights and a healthy environment to come to light. And this is important as it helps to build the case for action on climate change, not as a narrow environmental issue, but as an issue of human rights and development. Here in Scotland, this message has already sunk in. Your policies on climate change are closely linked to those on economic development and human rights. As a result, Scotland is numbered amongst the few countries in the world to adopt climate change legislation, setting world-leading emissions reductions targets, the most meaningful signal of a nation's commitment to act. Enshrining your mitigation commitment in law demonstrated not just a desire to act, but also a willingness to be held accountable by your citizens and the international community. The countries showing leadership on climate change are diverse and include Mexico and Kenya. 
Adopting climate change legislation is not a function of the wealth or the development of a society. In fact, low-carbon, climate-resilient development is even more relevant to the policies and plans of poor developing countries. Last October, I had the honour of delivering a lecture in a different venue in Scotland. You never know how politically correct it is to mention some other university, but I'm going to do it anyway. I delivered the 2011 Magnuson Lecture at Glasgow Caledonian University. And when I did that, as I tend to do nowadays, I challenged both the government and civil society in Scotland to become champions of climate justice. And I was very pleased that the, your First Minister, in his speech to the Communist Party Central School in China last December, highlighted climate justice as a solution to addressing the impacts of climate change. I'm very pleased that Scotland has taken up this challenge, and I'm impressed by the leadership being shown here in the area of climate justice, with the first ever parliamentary debate on climate justice worldwide taking place on the 1st of March 2012 in the Scottish Parliament. This debate reflected the importance of linking climate change to human rights and how climate change unjustly impacts on the rights of those most vulnerable communities around the world. As I mentioned earlier, I was also delighted to be present at the launch in May of this year of the Scotland Climate Justice Fund, which is providing about £3 million to support water projects in Malawi, Rwanda, Tanzania and Zambia increasing communities' resilience to the impacts of climate change. And I'm pleased to learn that the first applicants to this fund will be announced shortly. It's crucial, as Alan Miller stated in his lecture from climate change to climate justice last month, that Scotland maintain this momentum in championing climate justice and proceed with its plans to host an international conference on climate justice in 2013. This conference will provide Scotland with a platform to demonstrate its leadership on climate justice and to show that this important issue is now integrated into Scotland's updated international framework published just last month. Alan also mentioned the opportunity for the Scottish Government to bring its commitment and roadmap on climate justice into discussions on Scotland's first national action plan for human rights. I believe that the integration of the government's work on climate justice into the National Action Plan, while it is being drafted over the next year, will prove an invaluable way to keep climate justice high on the agenda here in Scotland. Meanwhile, in the Mary Robinson Climate Justice Foundation, we're working on a new initiative with the World Resources Institute, based in Washington, DC, called the Climate Justice Dialogue. It's going to be a global dialogue. The Climate Justice Dialogue aims to mobilize political will and creative thinking to shape an equitable and ambitious international climate agreement to be concluded in 2015. It will facilitate a global dialogue on issues of equity and justice in the context of climate change, while creating a strong evidence base in su to support and build momentum for an equitable outcome. The window of opportunity for this dialogue opened in Durban last December. More than 190 countries gathered under the auspices of the Climate Convention in Durban and acknowledged that climate change represents an urgent and potentially irreversible threat to both human societies and the planet, 
and thus requires urgent and sustainable action by all. The agreement of the Durban Platform for Enhanced Action, at COP17 as it was called, marked significant progress in climate negotiations as all countries reached agreement on a roadmap towards a new legal agreement. To achieve this, it would be necessary to have a serious global discussion on issues of equity and the acceptance and the meaning and the impact of common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities in relation to reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. But we believe that equity is also relevant to adaptation. How do poor countries adapt to the worsening climate shocks they're suffering where they have no insurance and they have to learn new ways to cultivate? Equity is relevant to the transfer of technologies. We can help to deal with the justice issue by helping poor communities to have access to clean technologies. Equity is relevant to financial instruments and can increase the political ambition to avoid dangerous climate change. Beyond the negotiations, there's a need to mobilize domestic constituencies in countries around the globe to demand greater ambition from political and business leaders. A compelling vocabulary of arguments built upon a solid evidence base will be needed to motivate domestic stakeholders, including citizens, consumers, corporations and governments at all levels, to demand more urgent and ambitious action on climate change. We're proposing that a climate justice narrative can form a vital component of this wider vocabulary. In recent years, a variety of new social movements, ranging from the colored, the rose and other revolutions in Eastern Europe, and the Arab awakening, to indeed, at the other end, the Occupy movement and the Tea Party, have emerged across the globe with seismic impacts on our global political discourse. Social media and speed of interaction can enable a galvanizing of a movement that people want to be part of and believe in. In the coming three years, we have a window of opportunity to develop a strong climate justice narrative to complement the emerging science on climate change. It's only by responding to science and protecting people's human rights that an effective and equitable deal can be done to avoid dangerous climate change. The role of the Climate Justice Dialogue is to facilitate discussions around the world that bring people together, allow them to have space to talk and be listened to, and to create new constituencies demanding action of their leaders. There's an opportunity for Scotland to join the Climate Justice Dialogue, and my foundation is already working with the Glasgow Caledonian University to build a global climate justice research da database with documents, research, uh, with documents researched from around the world on the theme of climate justice. So far, Dr. Tasheen Jaffrey and her team at GCU have compiled over a thousand entries from around the world of climate justice research conducted over the past 10 years. In addition, there's an opportunity for the proposed International Climate Justice Conference, which the Scottish Government has committed to hosting in 2013, to plug into the work of the Climate Justice Dialogue. We need to build urgency and ambition because we're not on course for a safe world. 
When I say those words, they come back to me in the faces of the people who are most affected. We need to take the urgency I feel when I talk to those who know the situation firsthand. Women farming in Uganda, like my friend Constance O'Kellett, who tells me that when she was growing up in her village, there were seasons. So they were poor, but they knew when to sow and they knew when to harvest and they had enough food. Now they have periods of prolonged drought and then flash flooding and then more drought. It has swept away the school and she formed a group of women to try to fight back. When I was in Bangladesh, I was taken down to the Bay of Bengal to see the brackish water from a cyclone, which is still affecting the uh, population there and they can no longer fish in the way that they did and they have to find new ways of growing crops that can grow in brackish water. And they know that cyclones will become more common. I have another friend who lives in one of the small Cataract Islands, Ursula Rakova. She's in the process, as I was telling the students at lunchtime, she's in the process of moving 1,500 people from her small island to Bougainville in Papua New Guinea. She's negotiating for 1,500 people to move to a new community, to buy land and live there as a community. But she says very sadly that there's nothing she can do about the fact that they have to move from the land of the bones of their ancestors. And for an indigenous people, that's a tragedy because their spiritual connection is with the land of the bones of their ancestors. And we're going to see more and more uh, small island states where people are going to have to live. And by gathering in a climate justice narrative um, where we can um, inform, be informed by the voices of the most vulnerable, I believe we can create strong constituencies of demand and the political will needed to really get serious about solving the climate, climate crisis. Central to this climate crisis narrative will be the issue of food and nutrition security, where climate change accentuates the risk of hunger and undernutrition on the most vulnerable households and communities. To highlight these issues, MRFCJ and the Irish government will convene an international conference in Dublin on the 15th and 16th of April 2013 during Ireland's presidency of the Council of the European Union. The conference will facilitate a dialogue and debate on the linked challenges of hunger, nutrition and climate justice and to encourage and inspire innovative thinking and solutions. It will bring together key policymakers and global thought leaders with local people the majority will be local people who um, are practitioners facing the realities of rising food prices, failed crops, undernutrition and voicelessness, thereby creating a constituency of demand which in turn will inform our work on the climate justice dialogue. 2013, next year, will also present us with a golden opportunity to leverage the United Kingdom's presidency of the G8 to focus on food security. And I was delighted to learn today that the G8 will actually be meeting in Northern Ireland, which I think is a very generous gesture, which I'm sure will be very greatly appreciated. And I feel that Scotland too could play a central role and champion the climate side of this focus on food security. As you can tell, I think, I'm really very excited by the work of the Climate Justice Dialogue. 
because I feel it will provide a voice for the voiceless and be key to unlocking barriers to reaching agreement on new climate legislation. To quote Thomas Paine, a leading Enlightenment thinker, from his powerful thesis on the rights of man, what Archimedes said of the mechanical powers may be applied to reason and liberty. Had we, said he, a place to stand upon, we might raise the world. The climate justice dialogue is our place to stand on, and the nexus between human rights and climate change remains the narrative we can use to raise the world. Scotland was a front runner during the Industrial Revolution with inventions such as the steam engine, contributing to economic development and providing for a better quality of life. However, as we know, this model of development relied on the consumption of fossil fuels and contributed to climate change. Scotland is now seen by many as a world leader on knowledge, technology and skills related to marine and other renewable energies. I understand the University of Edinburgh has strong links with the Mazdar Institute, Abu Dhabi's renewable energy company, and that earlier this year the First Minister and the CEO of Mazdar, um, Dr. Um, um, Ahmad Al-Jabir, signed a framework for action to advance relationships between Mazdar and Scottish enterprises. My foundation just last week co-hosted a high-level majlis in Abu Dhabi. A majlis is where women participate and everybody is enabled to speak. A majlis in Ab entitled Arab Women Leading the Way in Energy and Climate Change with the Mazdar Institute and the Director Directorate of Energy and Climate Change um, of the Emirates. There are also already good examples of collaboration between Scotland and developing countries to share and further develop these skills. While opening new opportunities for Scottish researchers and businesses, e.g. your existing partnership with the Maldives on marine energy, you're helping to support new models of low-carbon, climate-resilient development in developing countries by showing what can be done and sharing your innovative know-how. Just as Scotland blazed the trail during the Industrial Revolution, you're doing so again by placing sustainable low-carbon growth at the centre of your domestic economic strategy. So I think it's appropriate that I call on Scotland to now lead what I would call the green enlightenment, the green clean enlightenment, by assisting those unjustly affected to adapt to the impacts of climate change and benefit from the opportunities provided by low carbon development. As I said earlier, enlightenment in the 21st century means we have to think and act intergenerationally. Let me conclude with the words of the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. Dare to know, have the courage to use your own reason. This is the motto of the Enlightenment. Dare to know that the world is not in a safe trajectory. Dare to know that politicians are not giving the leadership we need. Dare to know that we can change that by a narrative on climate justice which builds constituencies of demand, demand that holds governments to account. And there's no reason why Scotland would not give leadership on it because you've been giving leadership on climate change and you can build on that. Thank you very much indeed for being a great audience. Thank you.
That was an absolutely superb lecture. Uh, now we've got uh, time for questions. Uh, when you're asking a question, pl please state who you are and please be, be relatively brief. Who, who would like to ask the first question? Here we have somebody. And wait for the microphone. Otherwise, when people go and stand up, so we just <laughs> get, wait for the microphone. Otherwise, people will just look at you on YouTube and all they'll see is. Hi, my name is Sergio. I'm from the USA and I'm doing an MSc in Soils and Sustainability here. Um, my question is I'm taking a course in food security right now and um, I'm writing an essay on. Uh, Sorry, but it, it's, it's no, no, uh, continue. I'm, it's, I'm, I'm um, very interested. It's a, a vulnerability analysis on food security in Zimbabwe. I'm yeah. just wondering about what you think about how the vulnerability of the people in sub-Saharan Africa and other poor countries, and what's being done to um, address that, the vulnerability. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's a very good question, and also I'm delighted at your subject because. Uh, this is what we need from universities. Um, we need more focus on uh, what is happening in reality, um, and a vulnerability analysis will bring that out. Um, it will look at uh, soil depletion, it will look at water problems, it will look at um, uh, what, what, are, what are the possibilities. Um, Africa is the main uh, um, continent that I've been working on human rights in over the years. I've now broadened to um, other parts of the world because our uh, dialogue on, on, on climate justice will be global. But Africa I know uh, relatively well. It's why I came to climate justice. Um, the uh, prolonged drought and um, uh, flash flooding that um, my friend Constance O'Kellett described in Uganda. I was back in Somalia in July 2011 when the uh, United Nations declared famine. Uh, I say back in Somalia because I had been in Somalia in 1992 as president of Ireland, asked to go there by the aid agencies because there was fighting between different warlords and the food wasn't getting to the feeding stations in the conflict and people were dying and they wanted to draw attention to this. When I was back there in June, July, sorry, July 2011, I was conscious of something that we'd never mentioned in 1992, that the Horn of Africa had had the eight hottest years in succession ever measured. So you can imagine what that's doing to an already vulnerable dry area. And that's the problem we're dealing with. We're dealing with something very, very significant that is a change that is resulting in climate shocks for people who have no insurance. In Liberia, my friend Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the president, uh, complains about the fact that when she was growing up in Liberia, the two rainy seasons were quite predictable within a week or so. Now they're completely unpredictable and she can't mend her roads, she can't plan her economy. So that is the problem of very significant climate shocks. And um, I was in uh, Zimbabwe um, um, about three years ago, and I could see you know, some of the problems there as well. And, and so uh, I think the work you're doing is very important, but we, we shouldn't underestimate that climate change is not a thing of the future. It's hurting poor subsistence farmers, poor communities, indigenous peoples, small island states, by the millions already. 
Got a question in the front row here. Hello. Hello, Mary. We've actually met. My name is George McBean, and I worked with UNICEF for ah, yes. many years. And uh, but I have a question about the language uh, difficulties that people that you're talking about to join in the narrative. That there's so many countries around the world that they don't have a word for rights in mm. their own language. And so they may understand climate change because of the impact, but they don't really understand the implications of their legal rights and this word, human rights. So I just wondered how, what you thought about involving them in the dialogue, in the narration. I think that in my um, experience, people do understand human rights. I actually take the trouble to ask women in villages, uh, what do human rights mean to you? And what they say is access to water and freedom from violence, or some version of that. And that's very interesting because it's both um, uh, economic and social rights, access to water, and civil and political, freedom from violence, from uh, the violence of corruption, the violence of gender-based violence, of rape, etc. You know, so uh, I, 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 I must say, I've been in most countries of the world as High Commissioner for Human Rights, and that is not a problem. The problem is that governments sometimes want to say that um, we have a different culture here. For example, uh, child marriage or genital cutting is part of our local culture, and that I always challenge. It's not culture. It's a traditional practice, and it's harmful when it affects human rights, as early child marriage or genital cutting do. But because it's very much prevalent as a traditional practice, the only way to tackle it is from within, from within communities, from within villages, from within cities or um, uh, towns. So you have to work on increasing education of women and girls and supporting um, other alternatives and involving everyone, the imams, the, 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 the men, the boys, etc. But um, uh, the, the human rights values, I believe, um, have to be uh, understood in the context of different communities. But there are standards which we should not go below. And we have ways of doing that, I think. Professor Robinson, it's such a delight. Um, I'm Elsa, I'm from Namibia, and I actually had the privilege to share a panel with you at the World Economic Forum in 2009. Huh. <laughs> um, we talked, you talked a bit about young leadership, and obviously this is really important to me as well, being a young leader from my country. But what can we as young people do to champion that? I mean, obviously there is a responsibility on the government to include young people, but I think there's also a responsibility on young people hmm. to be active and to get on the panels. Hmm. So what can we do to make an impact from our side, even if there, the opportunity does not exist yet? Hmm. How can we create it as young people um, to make an impact? <coughs> Well, first of all, thank you. That is a great question, uh, that you stand up there as a young woman and are talking about leadership. I like that very much. You're already more than on the way, and uh, that is important. And, um, and it means that you simply have to have you know, the courage and the conviction to do that. Um, there's a very interesting um, analysis of youth in Africa um, on the website of the Mo Ibrahim Foundation, um, I participated in a forum on youth in Africa. Um, the median age in Africa, in other words, when you average out all the ages, the median age is 
the median age of African leaders is 62. <laughs> so, uh, of African presidents. So, um, that, that's making the point. Uh, I think that young people have more potential to lead because you're much smarter on technology. Um, you know, you have the ability to see the world in very global terms because you're able to surf and use social media to inform yourselves. And you have friends all over the world in a way that no other generation quite did. And you have ways of linking, I think, and of, of, of being active. But the, the thing that's most important is the sort of courage and um, confidence to get up like you did and say, I'm a young leader, I want to know what I can do more. I mean, that's really what we need. We do need that leadership. And young people um, have to uh, be more factored in, in both countries like this and Ireland, and other, because um, these are very rough times for young people um, to come into the economic um, difficulties of, of um, a, a very severe downturn, and that feeling um, we're not going to be able to cope in the way that our parents did. That requires more leadership. And so I certainly encourage you, and I would also encourage you to look at the facts and figures about youth in Africa, because it's quite a positive story as well. And uh, we can talk later, maybe. <laughs> Helen Kay from Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Very much enjoyed your talk. Very Thank interesting. Um, in Wolf, we've been talking about food sovereignty, and I noticed you always use the term food security. And I wondered if you had any kind of um, way of it showing what the difference is. Sorry, could you just clarify again? Um, between food security, yes, um, and we started using the term. We're looking to move towards maybe an idea of food sovereignty, oh, yes. which would give yes, people sorry, yes. Yes. more control yeah. over the production yeah. of food. Yeah. Um, thank you. It's a it's a, it's a very um, uh, important question, and it, it actually is one that. Um, I think w would even need a longer answer than I'm going to give. Um, I always, and my foundation, my colleagues and I, we use food and nutrition security. Because when you talk about nutrition, you're talking people. When you're talking about food, you could be talking more about bulk food for the sovereignty of a country. Um, and then that's one meaning of sovereignty, that, um, that, you have, um, uh, that you generate all the food you need from the country. But that doesn't necessarily mean, mean that it's getting to people, and especially children, and there's, there's good nutrition. So we talk about food and nutrition security in order to make sure that the first thousand days of the child are part of government planning, etc. Um, another way of, that I am aware that food sovereignty is talked about is that um, communities should um, sort of grow their own food or produce their own food within, say, a hundred kilometer radius. That's another way in which it's, it's spoken about. Um, I think that what we need is to be more conscious of the carbon footprint on some food, that frozen chickens from Europe undermine local chickens in African communities, for example. And I think this is probably what you're getting at. But what politically I worry about is if we, if we just talk about food security, we may be talking more about a kind of economic food sovereignty. Um, so 
uh, part of the language that we use is food and nutrition security. So we're talking at this conference in Dublin, it's hunger, nutrition, and climate justice, very deliberately to, to be talking people rather than um, uh, closing your grain, your rice market because you fear that there may be a shortage and you want to hold it for yourself, you know, the political um, dimensions of, of food production. Question there. My name's Anton Zhukovsky. I'm a professor in the university. Uh, I think the uh, uh, climate change and, and trying to deal with it is very commendable. And, uh, you know, in Scotland, we have a, a commitment to do something about it. But if you look at the developing world, um, it develops through energy. And we've got two billion people in the world wash their clothes in washing machines and the other five billion don't and they wash them by hand and they would like washing machines which requires electricity and so China has developed by um, increasing its you know uh, energy by um, mm. burning fossil fuels mm. and right now it's producing more greenhouse gases by burning coal than the rest of the world is producing from transport mm. So I see a big conflict between, on the one hand, wanting developing countries to develop, and on the other hand, tackling the climate change problem. Mm. So uh, <clears throat> do you have any comment on that? I mean, it seems to me it's not very straightforward. Mm. I think that's um, a question that really goes to the heart of uh, this idea of having a dialogue on climate justice. What is fair? Um, countries want to develop. Um, do they have the same kind of development that uh, the industrialized countries have had based on fossil fuel? If they do, we're definitely not going to have a safe world. So it's in our interests and their interests that they have choices. There's a great fear among uh, leaders in developing countries about what we call green growth. Does that mean I can't develop unless it's green, but I can't get to the green? I can't get to uh, clean technologies because I don't have the, um, the know-how. So that's, a, that's, a, that's part of a big discussion, and I know that you're very aware of this from the way you phrased the question. But to me, it's incredibly important that we have this discussion because um, we have uh, the energy off-grid gadgets that could transform the lives of the 1.3 billion who have no access to electricity and who use kerosene or candles, the 2.6 billion who cook on um, firewood and coal and animal dung and ingest um, indoor fumes. Um, the reality is that if we stopped subsidizing fossil fuel and if we put all the focus on developing the clean energies as, a, as an absolutely driven priority in every part of the world, then we would have the transformative change that has to come about and it would come about more quickly. And um, what I'm very adamant about as a human rights person is that poor people have a right to development. But they don't necessarily have to do it in exactly the way we did. And a, a simple way of putting that is, um, in Africa, people have moved seamlessly to the mobile phone. They didn't go through landlines. You know? um, and if we can get the technologies 
um, uh, and, and really put the focus on developing them, then we can have a clean development. Um, the reality is that um, we are going to have a world with a lot of stranded assets, coal and oil that we will not be able to use. And investment companies are going to realize that these are becoming already and will increasingly become stranded assets because the impact on global warming and climate effects is becoming so significant and we're not heading for a safe world. So at some point in the not too distant future, a lot of the portfolios of fossil fuel companies will no longer be worth anything. They will be stranded assets. And I look forward to that day because then we really will have to move to the clean energy. Um, so, you know, it's a very complicated debate. I'm not a climate scientist. I'm learning. But I'm very aware that it's not a case of um, the uh, development having to be washing machines driven by fossil fuel. Um, it can be um, uh, solar solutions that enable a better quality of life. And hydro and wind and, and other, and biomass. And we need to just have that, that paradigm shift that um, some of us hoped might come out of Rio, but it didn't. There's not yet a recognition, I think. So we've got time for one last short question. Good evening. Hi. Thank you for coming. My name is Marco, and I study international relations. Uh, you mentioned the global war on terror, how it's been a setback for human rights. Uh, another thing that we've faced, another challenge we've faced in the recent years has been the global economic and financial crisis. Because of that, uh, global warming, climate change, human rights hasn't been at the forefront of issues that the Western world especially cares about. How do we shift to making that a top priority once again? Thank you. See, that's what I like. Um, that's what gives me hope. Your generation, it seems to me, get it. And that genuinely gives me great hope. I think young people and people younger than you are coming into a world where this is their world now. And they're actually beginning to realize that this is something that they have to get very real about. Um, for the United States in particular, it's going to take even more of these terrible weather shocks they've been suffering. The drought in the western part of the United States, the super um, uh, storm Sandy. And again, you know, how much Sandy itself is directly attributable to directly climate change, um, one can argue. But the point is, we're getting more and more of these climate shocks. And the United States is what I would call a climate resilient country. So it immediately has FEMA, the federal emergency law. It has um, the state of New York able to come with it. It has insurance companies. It, but for most of the people deeply affected by climate shocks, they have no plan B. Um, they have no um, insurance, etc. So um, that's another issue. But I, I, think that, I think that the debate is moving in a good direction because the World Bank has just issued a report. Um, I've just forgotten what its name now. The, uh, the heat. Um, um, does anybody remember that, the name of the report? I've just been reading an executive summary, but I can't remember the name of it. I'm an elder, officially an elder. <laughs> um, but it is um, language the World Bank didn't use a few years ago about climate change. The International um, Energy Agency um, is using language it didn't use a few years ago about the dangers of climate change. It's becoming a security issue for uh, defense forces in a different sense um, because of the impacts of it. So I think um, the... 
way in which the, uh, the global downturn um, had, had a particular focus. I think we're going to go back now more to, and I think with uh, President Obama hopefully giving leadership in the United States, that may change um, a, a good deal for the better because if the United States gets very real about climate change, um, then we will see a lot of change very rapidly. But it's your generation, it's young people who have to be angry about what's happening and get active and become part of this climate justice dialogue. So it's a great uh, privilege now to propose a vote of thanks. I, I think for this uni university, and if I can presume for, for Scotland, uh, that was an extremely important lecture. Um, you spoke with, with tremendous clarity. You addressed a number of different themes. You, you talked very clearly about international policy and how that uh, and the political processes that condition things. Um, you also talked uh, about the scientific side of uh, climate change. And while you asserted you're not a scientist, you, you spoke uh, with, the, with the, the clarity that I would associate with the scientist. And you also addressed the human issues, and you addressed them very clearly. Uh, you addressed them generically, but you also uh, spoke uh, in, in a very compelling way about different incidents uh, that you yourself had seen. Um, you have given us, um, as Scotland and as a university, a very, very clear challenge. Uh, you want a green, clean enlightenment. I, I think it's a challenge uh, we should uh, try to rise to. Uh, in this university, we're extremely proud of our enlightenment tradition. Uh, we're also in a, uh, proud of our recent work on marine renewables, on carbon innovation. I think we should take these together. I think we should uh, rise to your challenge. And while you expressed, you know, very clearly the importance and the terrible conditions that a lot of people have that are worsening as a consequence of climate change. You also showed uh, tremendous optimism um, by engaging so well uh, with our students before the lecture and by showing such op optimism with regard to the, to the particularly the, the young questioners in the audience. So I would now invite you uh, to join me in thanking Mary again. This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.